You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. that knows that as much as we all like to make fun of Lord Byron, without him, we wouldn't have had the Foundations for Computers or the world's first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace. Because her mom was so aggressively determined that she wouldn't turn out to be a useless, horny poet like her dad, Lord Byron, that she shoved Ada so hard into mathematics that she was making computer algorithms in 1843. Don't say poetry never did nothing for modern technology. I'm Megan. Lord is a good first name. You just, you call him Lord Byron. This is just what you call him. Like the singer. I'm RJ. He's purring so loud. He's purring very loud. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Profi. <laughs> and today we're not covering poetry or computers, but Orlando, a biography. Ooh, I love Mickey Mouse. What? That's where Disney is. Orlando, a biography, which is not a biography, but a novel by Virginia Woolf. Well, I guess it's is kind of a biography. It's complicated. Is he still being too loud? He's so loud. <laughs> We've been here all day. I know, and he hasn't given a shit about us. But as soon as we got record, suddenly, he's like, I want to be in the room where it happens. You see, RJ... Some people might get their polyamorous lesbian lover and best friend some fancy jewelry to show their appreciation. Or maybe like a painting or a cool little sculpture or something if you're artsy and want to make something from the heart. Or maybe a big titty anime girl statuette if she's a weeb. Those are all great gifts. But Virginia Woolf's not some people. She's one of the key figures of the modernist movement of authors and the pioneer of the narrative device known as Stream of Consciousness which is a narrative mode that essentially boils down to, I'm just gonna start talking, and whatever happens, happens. And we'll get there when we get there. Twitter. Twitter is short. This is the opposite of short. It's not Twitter at all. Take just one person's like whole Twitter history, and you put it together in one book. Stream of consciousness. All right, fine. I'll give you that. And furthermore, her GFBFF wasn't just any 20th century gal about town. It was bisexual, gender non-conforming, novelist, poet, journalist, garden designer, and wildly prolific horn dog, Vita Sackville West. So Wolf bypassed something easy, like a 9-pound, 31-inch tall Psyduck plushie, and instead wrote a several-hundred-page novel satirizing English literary histiography in the biographic form about a young man who lives for several centuries while remaining extremely sexy, then at some point becomes a still very sexy young woman who experiences love and loss as some dubiously racist experiences, we'll get there, and writes a whole bunch of poetry. And also, this was all a stealth love letter to and pseudo-biography of the aforementioned GFBFF, Vita Sackville West. Sackville West's son, Nigel Nicholson, even called it, quote, the longest and most charming love letter in literature, in which she explores Vita, 
weaves her in and out of the centuries, tosses her from one sex to the other, plays with her, dresses her in furs, lace, and emeralds, teases her, flirts with her, drops a veil of mist around her. As one does. <laughs> I mean, not everyone can get their girlfriend a gift that provides both the romantic idea of being truly seen and known and also ends up being widely considered both a feminist classic and a key text for gender and transgender studies, but it's fine. Most of us will be perfectly happy with a 9-pound, 31-inch tall Psyduck plushie now available for pre-order. Only $285 the holidays are just around the corner. And you can't very well cuddle a semi-biographical modernist satire to sleep now, can you? RJ. So. Did you ever read Orlando for school? I did not read Orlando. I keep wanting to call it Othello. I don't know why. I mean, he watches Othello in in the book. Yeah. Orlando kind of sounds like Othello, I guess. But so I did. What grade? Uh, Grad school. No, that's not (laughs) high school. I didn't say high school. Fair enough. I said school. All right, fine. Maybe listen when I talk to you about nine pound, 31 inch tall Psyduck plushies. I've actually only ever read two books by Virginia Woolf. Orlando, which is lots of fun, and To the Lighthouse, which is absolutely no fun at all. So it's a weird portrait of a person to have. Yeah, no, so I read uh, Orlando in graduate school for a class titled, appropriately enough, Gay and Lesbian Authors. Uh, Despite the fact that Wolf was probably trending more towards bisexual, but whatever. That that class had a lot of problems. It was very small, Uh, none of us in it were straight, and none of us also had ever had a class with this professor before, and we were just continually disappointed with the reading list. It was so weird and half-assed. It was like, well, this author might have been gay, potentially, if you squint. Anyway, here's a depressingly heterosexual book they wrote. Enjoy! And then, like, every third book or so, we'd get something like this that was, you know, actually kind of queer and genderistically subversive. Uh, Old Man in the Sea. (laughs) Which was nice. (laughs) So, yeah. I don't know why you said Old Man in the Sea. Pretty queer. Oh, yeah. That Hemingway. (laughs) He like cock. (laughs) Like, go to cock fights, maybe. Yeah, that was a weird fucking class. I don't even remember that professor's name. I'm trying to think of other strange man. very gay authors, and I can't, other than Ernest. Yeah. <laughs> Only queer author that comes to mind. Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> yeah. I want to start making jokes. <laughs> fucking twit. What's the one that does A&P? What? A&P, the short story. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, you don't like the author. That's how I was going to do the joke. Oh. Okay, Updike. Oh, fuck Updike. See, that would be the kind of thing. That would be the kind of thing for this class. And it would be like, well, uh, his last name's got the word dyke in it. I think that counts. I agree. <laughs> but before we can dive into this centuries-long celebration of what was secretly Sackville West, we have to learn about the wolf in sheep's clothing that was holding the quill. Oh, come on. That was a good one. It was a good one. Maybe. Go ahead, RJ. There's no use being afraid of Virginia Woolf. Eh? Actually, there might be, eh? but we'll get to that. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid of Virginia Woolf, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Particular me. What do you mean, particular you? Oh, there's some things you don't know. Oh, no, there's plenty of things. If you're talking about the raging anti-Semitism, yeah. I'm aware. Uh, okay, <laughs> and the racism? And the ableism. No, I, I have a, a note here that... How did I put it? Uh, that she she does good things for gender and feminism, but she does real bad shit for almost everything else. You know, in 2020, <laughs> she would have been canceled. Everyone would have heard of her. J.K. Rowling. 
But as I'm saying, that's the point, that you, you take these authors who were of their time, you examine them, you look at the things that they did for their time that were good, and you look at the ways in which they were horrible fucking people. And then, you know, however many uh, decades later, someone will look at J.K. Rowling and they'll be like, all right, what'd, what'd she do that was good? And they'll be like, uh, I guess she wrote about a wizard people liked. What'd she do that was bad? Woof! Holy shit! <laughs> so tell us about Virginia Woolf. You didn't throw it over. So I, I threw it over to you before, but then uh, we got off track. Well, here, so let's take the person. Let's look at what they did. Adeline Virginia Stephen, later Wolf was born January 25th, 1882, and died March 28th, 1941. January 25th is also celebrated as Burns Night, as in Scottish poet Robert Burns, the man who penned the New Year's Eve banger, Auto Lang Syne. So Bobby and Ginny are birthday twins. Exciting. Mm. Mm. January 25th is also National Opposite Day. And while I'll take my word for it, you won't find things that are much more opposite than these two. Eh, eh, eh. I don't get it. March 28th is a loaded day. Check these out. Can you go back to doing, like, financing with RJ? Like, this joke is so done. March 28th is National Black Forest Cake Day, National Something on a Stick Day, National Triglycerides Day, National Weed Appreciation Day. Yeah, I got something I want to put on a stick. Weed? Triglycerides? A train? (laughs) Yo, folks, you can send me your favorite days of the year. Ginny was born in South Kensington, London, to Julia Jackson and Leslie Stephen. Daddy Ginny was a writer, historian, essayist, biographer, and mountaineer. Quite the dating profile he put together. Mama Ginny, meanwhile, was a model who was celebrated for her beauty and for being a philanthropist. Ginny was named after both her maternal aunt, Adeline Maria Jackson, and her mother's great-aunt, Virginia Prattle. I suppose when you combine the names, Adeline Virginia is certainly one of them. The weird thing is, is that even though her name was Adeline Virginia, the reason we know her as Virginia and not Adeline is because her family never called her by Adeline. You see, Adeline dropped dead at 44, suddenly and shockingly the year before Ginny was born. So uh, they named Ginny to honor their dead sister and dead sister-in-law and then never spoke the name again. People are weird, man. Yeah. Mama and Papa Ginny met after Mama Ginny was widowed when her husband, lawyer, dropped dead in his early years. People were just dropping dead left and right in this tale. As happens. She was widowed with three children. Mama and Papa Ginny knew each other through mutual friends and moved in next door to each other and helped each other out before beginning a heated correspondence that led to marriage. It was a real 90s like sitcom. The two quickly added two children to their collection, now having five, and decided that was enough. Going forward, they decided to take precautions against having additional children. But it being the 19th century and precautions not being the best, they would have three more kids, landing on the final number of eight. Damn. Ginny was part of the bonus kids. She was the penultimate child, lucky number seven. Not very, as it would turn out. The family lived in number 22 Hyde Park Gate. It was a single-family townhouse that Ginny described later in life as, quote, a very tall but narrow house on the left-hand side near the bottom, which begins by being stucco and ends by being red brick, which is so high and yet, as I can say now that we have sold it, so rickety that it seems as if a very high wind would topple it over. Oh yeah, and it did not have running water. Those were the times, I guess. The home was also described as dimly lit and crowded with furniture and paintings. 
a lovely home full of ten people. It's a lot of siblings. Fuck me. Oh, we'll get to that. A lot of siblings? Fuck me. Well, not you. Uh, oh, I thought you knew this. This is what you were alluding to. On why it's so bad she was like the second youngest child. Oh, no. Just the lucky number seven that she was not lucky because she struggled with debilitating mental health issues and... Yeah, and something caused those. And killed herself. Yeah. So as you can imagine, growing up in a household like this with seven siblings and two parents who were referred to as being, quote, overcommitted with their outside work led to a very dysfunctional environment. There was no real authority, and what little proclaimed authority there was was used against Virginia and her sisters. In a biography of Ginny titled Virginia Woolf and the Women Who Shaped Her World, biographer Jillian Jill explains that it's important to note a part of the Virginia Woolf story, that she endured and survived sexual abuse during her childhood, beginning when she was six, and continued through her young adulthood. Oh, oh no. The abuse was specifically carried out by her half-brothers, George and Gerald. Jill says of this, quote, By Virginia's own account, it had a lifelong effect on her, and we see this when she's in her 40s and when she writes about it in her memoirs in 1939. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, part of why her relationship with Vita Sackville-West was considered so important and healing was that Vita was like, you have to like let go of your traumas and one of that was like her abuse but i did not read into it enough to know that it was sexual abuse at the hands of her siblings that's i mean i was to say that's fucking awful all sexual abuse is fucking awful but that's really fucking awful oh no it gets better from an interview with jill quote some biographers suggested that wolf fantasized the abuse and attributed her claims to her supposed madness Quentin Bell, Virginia's nephew, who also wrote a biography of Virginia, wrote that several people had attempted per to persuade him, quote, that these ugly stories were untrue, that they were phantoms of Virginia Woolf's wild imagination, delusions conceived during periods of nervous breakdowns. More contemporary biographers like Jill suggest the opposite, that Virginia's lifelong struggles with mental health is a direct result of the abuse she faced. So not only was she sexually abused by members of her family they tried to fucking like gaslight her into being like nah it's because you're crazy yes that's how even biographers after she died tried to brush it off fuck that's really horrible gill continues what we have learned now as we hear more and more about the effect of sexual abuse has is that even a single incident can scar a girl or a boy it's something that they carry with them and that molds them in unfortunate ways Gill does add that she's happy Virginia was able to write about the abuse that she endured as Wolf's efforts to speak up about her case set an example and is still relevant today. Virginia did not escape the family home, the home she was born in, until she was 22 when her father died. During her time in the family home, she began on her path of writing. Both of Ginny's parents disapproved of formal education for women. However, writing was considered a respectable profession for women, so her parents did encourage her in that respect. By the age of five, she wrote letters and told her father a story every night. It was her fascination with books that formed the strongest bond between her and her father. See, no, it's like, I can't have any imagery of, like, tiny Virginia doing things with her family. It's like, nope, mm-mm, that's all bad now. She liked her father. Didn't like the mother so much. 
It's unclear if the parents knew because the parents weren't around much. Right. Ginny said of the role of the books in her and her father's lives, quote, Even today, there may be parents who would doubt the wisdom of allowing a girl free run of a large and quite unexpurgated library. But my father allowed it. There were certain facts, very briefly, very shyly he referred to them. Yet, read what you like, he said, and all his books were to be had without asking. In 1891, when Ginny was nine, she and her sister Vanessa started the Hyde Park Gate News, which chronicled the lives of everyone inside the home. Ginny's mother was an early supporter of Ginny's writing efforts, telling her daughter that the paper was, quote, rather clever, I think. <laughs> Be very British. I was just about to say, that's like the most British thing. I'm rather clever, I think. When Ginny was 13, her mother passed away due to complications of the flu at age 49. Again, people be dropping like flies at a young age in this tale. After her mother's happens. Yeah, it happens. After her mother's passing, Ginny stopped working on the Hyde Park Gate News and instead began keeping diaries and journals of her own. While still living at Hyde Park Gate as a teenager, Ginny did attend courses in ancient Greek, intermediate Latin, and German, together with continental and English history at the Ladies Department of King's College of London. It was during this time that Ginny began to make associations with women who were part of different women's rights movements. And while Ginny was not allowed to go off to Cambridge like some of her brothers, Cambridge did impact her life considerably. Her brother made friends with some of the other young men at Cambridge and created a reading group they dubbed the Midnight Society. One of the men in that group, Leonard Wolfe, we'll hear more about him in a bit. Like, are you afraid of the dark? Maybe. <laughs> Spooky. Ooh, the approval of the Midnight Society. Actually, it was more spooky because they were Bahamian stories of Bahamian beliefs. <laughs> For the approval of the Midnight Society, communism and bisexuality. When Daddy Ginny died in 1904, when Ginny was 22, she suffered a nervous breakdown. As we've discussed, she had been through a lot. Her and her siblings decided the best thing to do was to get out of the house and maybe explore some of their newfound freedom. Ginny spent a couple months in France and Italy. Uh, Virginia suffered another nervous breakdown during this trip and experienced her first suicidal episode. With the help of her siblings, she spent the next few months recovering. From there, Virginia moved with her sister Vanessa to Bloomsbury, which was nicknamed Bohemian Bloomsbury. It was far from where they grew up, different culturally, and, probably most importantly, it was cheaper. <laughs> there were a lot of artists that lived in the area, because it was Bahamian and cheaper. And this is where Ginny, based on the relations she began having you mean with... Bohemian? Bohemian. Bohemian? Bohemian. Bohemian. Yeah, they weren't in the fucking Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was real Bahamian. <laughs> they were playing the, the steel drums. <laughs> yeah, and the Muppets were there. Says, yeah. Aruba, Jamaica... Ooh, I want to take it to the modernist. T.S. Eliot's there. Come on, pretty mama. Anyway, there were a lot of artists that lived in the area. And this is where Ginny, based on the relationship she began having with other artists, realized she wanted to become a writer. Visit Bohemian Bloomsbury. Bohemian! <laughs> Bohemian <laughs> Bloomsbury. It's not New York, but it's close enough. Essentially. With her brother, Thobby. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't get attached to him either way. Okay. <laughs> Spoilers. But with uh, their brother, Thobby, 
He's one of the good ones. Uh, Vanessa and Ginny would host what they called Thursday Evenings at Home, which later became known as the Thursday Club, which would include them having over some of the local intellectuals, such as Clive Bell, John Maynard Keynes, and Leonard Wolf, to, you know, talk about some big brain ideas. This group is what would eventually become the nucleus of the Bloomsbury Group. The group focused on discussing and emphasizing the importance of literature, aesthetics, criticism, and economics, as well as feminism, pacifism, and sexuality. They covered a lot of ground. And what boys they thought were cute. American author, poet, and critic Dorothy Parker said of the group, quote, They lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles. I, too, loved to tell a tubbies. <laughs> In 1905, at 23, Ginny took up a job of teaching at Morley College and soon thereafter suffered two more losses. Fabi, the brother, that had been living with her and her sister Vanessa, suddenly died after developing typhoid on a trek to Greece. And then Vanessa, her sister, married Clyde Bell. <laughs> you built that up. Look, I mean, when you get married off, it's kind of like a small death. Oh my God. Ginny began working on what would become her first novel in 1910. It would eventually be published in 1915, took some time, titled The Voyage Out, which is a semi-autobiographical tale about a young woman escaping from a repressive household and finding a chosen family in the form of a posh and progressive intellectual group. Subtle. Yeah. The five-year process of publication was long and arduous and led to bouts of depression and nervousness in Ginny, as one may expect. All was not bad, though, because her and her Bloomsbury group chums got to pull off some zany hijinks. In 1910, the group heard about another group that liked going undercover as fake delegations from random countries and cause all sorts of mayhem. And they decided this was something that they wanted to do. What followed became known as the Dreadnought Hoax. The group, Ginny included, dressed up and posed as members of the Abyssinian royal family from Ethiopia. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and basically played it so the Royal Navy rolled out the red carpet for them so they could tour the Dreadnought, a warship, and be big shots. The end game was getting onto the ship and getting the ship to fly the Zanzibar flag and play the Zanzibar national anthem because why not? As part of the hoax, Ginny posed as a prince and wore brown face. In fact, basically all of them wore brown face as they were supposed to be from Ethiopia. So, discuss that as you may. As much as I support the idea of fucking with the military and making them waste their time on bullshit, obviously doing blackface is not okay. I agree. I know. <laughs> Look at our strong takes in the year 2020. Blackface, bad. <laughs> in 1912, at the age of 30, Ginny and Leonard Wolfe began to take an interest in each other. The two had been in the same social circle now for a decade, so they knew each other well. It just had never been romantic before. He pursued her, she referred to him as a penniless Jew, and rebuffed his first proposal. But then a couple weeks later, I guess decided, eh, and told him, fuck it, she's down to clown, and they got hitched. Now you're my penniless Jew. Be that as it may, it's said by biographers that the two did share a very close bond. It's real confusing if you go into her biography... She we're going we're to get that Okay, because she really flip-flops on the anti-Semitism. In 1937, Ginny said of Leonard in her diary, quote, Love making after 25 years can't bear to be separate. You see it is enormous pleasure being wanted, a wife, and our marriage is so complete. It was not long into their marriage before Leonard knew of Virginia's battles of mental health 
as she attempted suicide again in 1913, a year into their marriage, and then again in 1915 after the publication of her first novel. He did remain staunchly at her side. One project the couple undertook together was starting their own literary press, Hogarth Press. The company actually still exists today, recently having been bought and relaunched by Random House. Ginny was interested in having a press as far back as her teen years, and she and Leonard were able to scrap enough material together to make that dream become a reality. Aside from printing their own works, they printed the works of other members of the Bloomsbury group. The company focused on printing writers that took unconventional points of views in an effort to form a reading community. In the background of all this, World War I began to rage across Europe. This led to Ginny and Leonard to move around quite a bit. While Leonard was drafted into the war, he did receive a medical exception and wound up not needing to serve. When back in the city on December 14, 1922, Ginny met the writer and gardener Victoria, a.k.a. Vivian LaVita Loca, Sackville West. The day after meeting Vita, Ginny wrote in her diary about, quote, the lovely, gifted, aristocratic Sackville West. At the time, Vita was considered the more skillful and more accomplished writer. Vita was married to one Harold Nicholson. This did not deter the two women from having a relationship that eventually blossomed into one of a sexual nature, which Vita described in a letter to her husband in great detail. <laughs> Dear Diary, today my wife wrote a letter about how she cucked me with Virginia Woolf, and it's so hot. She didn't cuck him. It was an open marriage. Um, he was also bisexual. You, you, you could want to be cucked. <laughs> I guess. Um, you he, put them horns on your head, boy. <laughs> He was also bisexual, and he was also out having affairs with... I don't know if you would really call them affairs when it's an open marriage. They're both acknowledging that they're having relationships with other people of the same sex. She wrote him a letter. <laughs> I mean, like, I gave all the clues here, man. She wrote him a detailed letter. She ain't trying to hide it. Like, what more do you want? Like, well, I don't know what you're explaining away here. I don't know. I guess cucking has this connotate... Has a weird... Is like a connotation to it now. Well, destroy it. He willingly wore the horns. Yeah, he was out fucking other dudes also. Okay. <laughs> I don't care about him. He's not part of this tale, really. Although eventually the relationship between the two became more of a friendship than anything else. For Ginny's part, although she was known for bragging about betting women who were married to men, she never really bragged about her relationship with Vita in any meaningful public ways. At least not at the time. I was going to say, um, what would you call Orlando? Well, she would, like, apparently, like, go to parties and be like, hey, guys, guess who I banged this weekend? Like, it wasn't subtle at all. Hey. You know, Orlando, I think he kind of had to be in the know. And so it's a little more closeted there. Ah. She never walked into a room and guys, did it with Vita? So this is with the Vita Loca. <laughs> Because say, there's not much more public than, like, literally writing an entire book and being like, this is for you. <laughs> like a good friend, Vita attempted to help Ginny address her mental health and self-esteem issues by encouraging Ginny not to view herself as a quasi-reclusive person inclined to sickness who should hide away from the world. But rather, she should emphasize her liveliness and wit, her health, her intelligence, and achievements as a writer. You know, be less Eeyore and more Tigger. That's one way to put it. Yeah. I mean, you could be a piglet if you want, I guess. I'm the owl. Actually, no, I'm Rue. That's who I always identified as. Does Rue have a personality? It's just baby. Yeah, that's me. Your baby? Yep. <laughs> me and the and the and um the child. The child. The child. The child. Me, the child, and Rue. <laughs> 
Vita also persuaded Ginny to read and write more and to spend less time on activities and hobbies she picked up at the convenience and suggestion of others. Vita also chose to have some of her works published by the Wolf's company to help them out financially as Vita's stuff sold like hotcakes. After the two women spent a week traveling through France in 1928, they returned to London where Ginny presented Vita with the soon-to-be-published Orlando, the focus of today's episode. A year after publishing Orlando, when she was 47, she published A Room of One's Own, perhaps her best-known work, which is an extended essay in which Ginny argues for both a literal and figurative space for women writers within a literary tradition dominated by men. She would publish four other novels during the next decade. The start of World War II coincided with a dreadful turn in Ginny's outlook on life and her mental health. Aside from there being a world war, which is bad enough, her and Leonard had to move several times early on during the war as multiple houses they were living in were lost in the bombing sieges carried out by the Germans across England. On top of that, the biography she wrote about her recently deceased friend, Roger Fry, received a chilly reception from critics, which made her question her own talents and abilities at a time when she did not have the ability to let it slide off. On March 28, 1941, at the age of 59, Virginia Woolf died from suicide. She left a note to Leonard that read, Dearest, I feel certain that I'm going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times, and I shan't recover this time. I begin to hear voices and I can't concentrate, so I'm doing what seems the best to do. You've given me the greatest possible happiness. You've been, in every way, all that anyone could be. I don't think two people could have been happier till this terrible disease came. I can't fight it any longer. I know that I'm spoiling your life, that without me, you could work. And you will, I know. You see, I can't even write this properly. I can't read. What I want to say is I owe all the happiness of my life to you. You have been entirely patient with me and incredibly good. I want to say that everybody knows it. If anybody could have saved me, it would have been you. Everything has gone for me but the certainty of your goodness. I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. V. What's striking is reading that and then reading about how she thought about her husband's Judaism. Oh, we're going to skip right over the actual suicide thing? What? Well, because it, it's not like she jumped off a bridge or something. Well, we're not doing suicide porn here. She, it's not suicide porn. It's like she loaded her pockets up with rocks and then walked into the water. Like, we joked on the last episode. Yeah, Javert, that's a real man. <laughs> Because the version with John Malkovich, he just walks, like, straight into the water, and it's fucking ridiculous, because it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's, it's the way that they portray it is extremely goofy, but you said, you know, the human body instinctively does not want to drown. Yeah. That even if you don't know how to swim, you're gonna, you know, it, it don't want to. So, just because I remember very viscerally the first time I learned about how she died, how much that struck me. Like, the sheer fucking, it's not quite the right word, but I can't think of a better one, like, tenacity of being like, nope, this is how we're doing this. It's like, oh, God, it just, I don't know, it fucks with me. Just the mindset you gotta be in. Now you can talk about the anti-Semitism. We already discussed how she referred to him as the penniless Jew. In 1930, in a letter to a friend, Ginny wrote, quote, How I hated marrying a Jew. How I hated their nasally voices and their oriental jewelry, and their noses, and their waddles. What a snob I was. Well, since she turns. 
See, that's what I said. She said, because sometimes she gets over, she's like, you know, what a snob I was. What a, you know, oh my God, like, what a horrible person I was, you know. She goes back and forth. But she doesn't say those things don't exist. It's like, I was a snob. Yeah. Because, well, they still have vitality. I don't know. The, the one that I thought was weird was something about how, like, she hates his Jewish laugh. Yeah. What is a Jewish laugh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We're both Jewish. Do we have Jewish laughs? Maybe. There you go. <laughs> is that a Jewish laugh? Once during a cruise, she remarked, quote, a great many Portuguese Jews on board and other repulsive objects. Uh, but we keep clear of those. Oh, God, that's real bad. She did not direct all her ire at Jews. <laughs> she had plenty of ire for all kinds of other people. As it's also clear that she was not exactly a fan of poor people, foreigners, and referred to a certain race of people as, quote, looking like chimpanzees. Mm. So on a racist scale, given the brown face and these comments, I say she's right there with Jimmy Kimmel and Justin Trudeau. Yay! Although she might not like being in the same group as Kimmel. Yeah. <laughs> but um. <laughs> She just wasn't great, and and she and yet this was also a person who was like railing against the wealthy and the privileged and shit and the the class system and the patriarchy, and so it's like you know you just how you see this bad and this bad and yet you do this you just you can't just the lack of self awareness is just I'll put this charitably these anti-Semitic and racist tendencies aside. Her standing in the field of literature only grew after her passing. In fact, the height of her popularity, as is the case with many writers we cover here on Oh No Lit Class, came only after her death. She was put on a stamp. In Romania. Nowhere else. (laughs) Only Romania. It's unclear why. That's weird. They just really liked her. Writers, including Margaret Atwood, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Toni Morrison all have said that Ginny was a big inspiration to them and their writing. Only one of them's a failure. Deep cut. Deep, deep cut. Ginny has memorials to her across the world, including at King's College, where she took courses, on the Rainbow Walk of Honor in the Castro neighborhood of San Francisco, where she never was, and in Singapore, where a woman's co-working space was opened and named Wolfworks, which, come on, is the most practical thing, which is awesome. All in all, Ginny is remembered as one of the most important modernist 20th century authors and as a writer who inspired literary feminism. The end. I prefer Jimmy Kimmel. Hey everybody, it's Megan. Just popping in here to remind you that this episode, like all of our episodes, is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons, for which we are extremely thankful and If we had the powers of Virginia Woolf, we would write you a full-length novel that was also a massive love letter about your incredible ability to live for centuries and flip into whatever genders you so desire. But we are not that powerful, so we do this and... We give you all the other Patreon perks that we offer to our beloved patrons whose support helps keep the show going, including the support of our newest patron, Thomas Jefferson Perryman IV. I had to say their full name like that because it is extremely powerful. It is a very powerful name. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson Perryman IV.
I have to, I have to, I have to do the whole thing every time. I feel like I'm legally bound and obligated. Thank you very much for your support. If you would like to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash class and you could get all kinds of awesome stuff. You get a shout out on the show, get access to bonus content, you could get fun swag, get a letter, you get stickers, you get bookmark, you get t-shirt, posters, you get to vote on stuff we do next, all kinds of cool stuff. One of the next episodes we have coming up, not this immediate next episode, but the episode after this one is going to be a Q&A special. So please send in any questions that you would like to have have aid, have answered by us. You can tweet to at onolickclasspod, or you can email it to onolickclass at gmail.com. Patrons who send the questions on Patreon do get priority. That is another uh, sweet perk. And I'll talk more about it on the next episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of this episode. In the words of Oscar Isaac... Let's get into gender politics. Yeah. So how does this pseudo-fictionalized biographic ode to Wolf's beloved Vita begin? With our titular hero whapping the decapitated head of a moor for target practice, of course. Which is hanging from the rafters and the color of an old football. Yikes. Yeah, our boy, who the opening lines assure us with a very, <laughs> just, just you wait kind of line. Just you wait. You're doing all the Hamilton. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> just you wait. In quote, he, for there could be no doubt about his sex, is, uh, he's doing that all right. But it's fine, because his family has a long and distinguished history of murdering non-white foreigners from African countries and bringing their heads back as trophies, and Orlando is too young to go out and do that, and so he stays at home and whaps them, and hey, let's talk about how pretty Orlando is, because he's very pretty. He's 16 and so unbelievably pretty, and loves to write him some poetry, and hey, Virginia, what the fuck? He's a pretty boy. No, no, not that. The decapitated head of a more whapping. Okay, so this book and Virginia Woolf at large does a lot for gender and feminism, but there's a lot of racism in it. And as we've just discussed, Woolf could be quite a racist when she was in the mood. The point. This severed head thing, it can be taken as a purposeful device, because Wolf is creating this narrator who is super subjective. They, they make this whole big stink about how they're doing a biography, and that they're a very good objective biographer doing a good objective biography, only from the word go, they're immediately going into poetic rhapsody over how unspeakably gorgeous Orlando is, which is a repeating theme. Throughout the book, Orlando will do something stupid or morally wrong, and the narrator slash biographer will bend over backwards to justify it, because clearly they have the hots for Orlando. And this is a joke that Wolf is doing on purpose, to show that biography is not necessarily objective, and that for someone to pretend it is, is kind of bullshit. You know, objectivity is, is not real. Everything's subjective. I mean, if language is subjective, how do you go from there? Well, welcome to book. So having the narrator just kind of leap past the whole whapping the severed head of a more on a string thing to get to what a fine piece of ass Orlando is. It's a moop. No. <laughs> They're the moops, no. Jerry. No. <laughs> it's the moops. That's a joke for no one. To get to what a fine piece of ass Orlando is could be excused as part of the whole shtick. 
if you get what I'm saying. And if you think I'm excusing Wolf being a racist, just wait, because there's much more flagrant and obvious shit later that has absolutely no narrative excuse for her to fall back on, but we'll get there. In the meantime, Orlando, writing poetry, lots of it. It's bad. What do you expect? He's 16. That's when I wrote my best works. Oh yeah? What was it about? Well, I was expecting a follow-up. Yeah, well, too bad. (laughs) Probably about chicks, man. Chicks, man. No, it was probably about Linkin Park. (laughs) Wait. Or to the beat of. I was going to say, wait, you were writing poetry about Linkin Park? (laughs) (laughs) Inspired by (laughs) the movie, the album. Well, Orlando's poetry isn't as good as that. How could it be? Cut my life into pieces. I'm Orlando. Tear my heart open, sew myself shut. Look at this picture. Is that not it? Look at this photograph? Yeah. Look at this picture. (laughs) Jesus. He sits by a big oak tree that dominates the family estate and tries to write about nature, but nature's hard. And anyways, Nature is hard. It's so hard. And anyway, soon enough, he hears a trumpet alerting him that Queen Elizabeth has come to the manor. Hell yeah, gonna meet the queen. And he does. And the queen looks at this femmy, awkward teen, because we're explicitly told that while he is ever so pretty, he's also very klutzy and always tripping and shit. He's like the protagonist of a YA novel. He's like Bella from Twilight. Very pretty, but but just a big klutz. Anyway, the queen looks at Orlando and is like, Ooh, mama likes. And after two years, so it's slightly less creepy, I guess. I don't know. She she waits till he's 18. Um, She makes him her personal cabana boy, which I believe is the official royal title at the time. Royal cabana boy. She protects him from having to go to war, gives him lots of money and land, and I don't know, earls, orders of dukedom or some shit. It's unclear whether he actually sleeps with her or if she just makes him, like, dance around in cute outfits. But she does get fucking pissed when she catches him with his tongue down some random girl's throat. Like, how's that for gratitude? And, uh, the biographer is, of course, like, Hey, man, it's not his fault. It was a different time. And Orlando's mad sexy. Can we truly blame him? Can we, though? Really? I mean, we could. You let the jury decide. Can we, though? Can we? Yes, this is America. No, this is Elizabethan England. And so Orlando wanders away from the court until Elizabeth conveniently... The court. Guilty. Until Elizabeth conveniently dies off and King James takes over. Orlando is quite the popular boy with all the ladies in court wanting a piece. And he thinks he's finally settled on one and even gets engaged, except... Except. Except then comes the Great Frost. And the river freezes over, and all the nobility skates over it and is having a great time, including the visiting Muscovite, probably, ambassadors. Uh, Muscovite just means Russian. Among them, Orlando sees an androgynous figure skate by, and at first is like, well, it can't be a girl, because no girl skates that good. But it can't be a boy, because no boy is that sexy. Sound logic indeed. It was David Bowie. It was David Bowie. Actually, it's the Russian princess. Bowie. (laughs) Princess Bowie. Princess Marusha Stanislavska Dagmar Natasha Ilyana Romanovich. Oh, it was Black Widow. Fuck me. (laughs) I love Scar Joe. It was Scarlett Johansson. He hears it and he's like, yeah, I'm gonna call you, you're Sasha. Your name, your name's ScarJo now. You're the Princess ScarJo. At dinner, she asks him in French to pass the salt and he decides that fiance be damned, he must have her. 
No one's ever asked him to pass the salt that sexily. In French with a Russian accent? Oof. Did you do the Salt Bay thing? Yes, she did Salt Bay. Wow, that's a classic meme. (laughs) (laughs) Can you please pass the Salt Bay? Yes. An appreciation for the old memes. (laughs) And uh, yeah, they absolutely boned down on the ice. Not like in front of everyone. Far away. After skating. They do fuck though. And then Orlando cries because he sees an old woman. He's a weird dude. Uh, I thought you were going to say cry because it fell off because he, you know, got like icicle dick. <laughs> That's how the actual transformation takes place. Icicle dick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was part of the video I saw in high school. <laughs> what video? <laughs> they teach you about the STDs. Icicle dick is not an S- There's nothing sexually transmitted about hypothermia dick. What are you typing? <laughs> Get, getting it so cold outside that your dick freezes and falls off is not a sexually transmitted disease. I'm um, being asked if uh, Edward Cullen has an icicle dick. Huh. <laughs> Does Edward Cullen have an icicle penis? We're just learning all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, whether or not Orlando has an icicle penis, he, he's just kind of an odd guy. And maybe that's why ultimately, when Orlando tries to convince Sasha to run away with him instead of going back to Russia with her family... She fails to show up at their prearranged meeting spot and dishes him. Thus, Orlando experiences his first heartbreak. How do you think he handles it, RJ? Very well. Yeah? Think he just bounces back? Yeah, you, you listen to uh, some Papa Roach. You get it out of your system. You're back. Now, he goes into a coma for a week. That happens, too. <laughs> and he wakes up and pretends like nothing happened. Which, on a scale from teenager to romantic poet, is uh, it's up there. And uh, much like both teenagers and romantic poets coming off a bad breakup, Orlando decides now's a good time to get real into death. He starts hanging out in tombs, crying, touching skeletons, crying some more, looking at rats, continuing to cry, just being a real fucking buzzkill. If you're gonna go for a goth existential crisis, have fun with it. Put on some Susie and the Banshees. Watch The Lost Boys. Put a pair of neon sunglasses on that skeleton. Jazz it up. Wake me up when September ends. That's not goth. Wow. It's not. Okay. We're talking about goth existential crises. He's in a tomb crying with rats. Come on, get your fucking subgenre straight. Luckily, he moves past that and onto what the biographer describes as a terribly problematic disease known as enjoying literature. Dun, dun, dun. Something that is horribly dangerous because it could lead to an even worse affliction. Diarrhea. Yes. (laughs) Just shitting everywhere. And then attempting to write literature. And and really, it's kind of diarrhea in its own way. Yes, Wolf, you're very cute. Everyone thinks you're funny. But we know Orlando's been writing since he was a small boy anyway. And uh, while he's not getting any better at it, it sure hasn't stopped him from trying. He uh, thinks about his family's legacy and decides that instead of killing, he will write poetry, which is much harder than murder anyway. So even if he writes really shitty poetry, you know, he's already won that fight. Also, poetry is immortal. I'm sure there's a metaphor in there somewhere, considering he's going to be alive for 300 plus years by the end of the book. But moving on, he invites a poet named Nick Green to his manor to teach him to write poetry less shitty and impart great poetic wisdom. RJ, what kind of great poetic wisdom you got? Twinkle, twinkle. Little star. No, no, I mean, like, I, I was thinking, like, profound truths. You know the shortest poem in the world? Three words. What? 
Fleas. Adam Haddam. I hate you. It's a good poem. I like it. Green's great poetic wisdom is that poetry is bullshit. <laughs> well, life is bullshit. So, I mean, anything that flows from that, it's downstream. Hey. And Orlando's like, can you tell me if my poems are good? Green says no. And Orlando says, I'll pay you. And Green's like, yeah, all right. He goes home and he reads Orlando's poem and it's dog shit. It's just so bad. And he writes a big parody of it. And Orlando reads it and gets sad. And orders his servants to burn all his writing except for a poem about the one big oak tree that he's been working on since he was young. Then he says he's done with men and only hangs out with his dogs. Also, we're told he's 30 now. I mean, it's been like almost 100 years, I think, but you know what I mean. So to recap, 30 years old, slutted around, got his heart broken by one girl so bad he slept for a week, then cried in a tomb with rats and wrote shitty poetry, and when someone told him it was shitty, he burned it all, and now has sworn off human interaction entirely to just chill with dogs. Yeah. <laughs> he spends an unclear amount of time redecorating his house, decides afterwards he's okay with people again, throws some sick ragers, and then one day he meets... Archduchess Harriet Griselda of Finster Airhorn and Scanned Op Boom. I fucking hate this. At first, Orlando's kind of horny for her, but oh, Harriet Griselda, etc., is like kind of a lot. Just like a stalker, a lot. And Orlando's like, mmm, the junk says yes, but the everything else says no. Bye. He does what any reasonable young man would do. Go to King Charles and ask to be sent to Constantinople as an ambassador. No, really, that's what it says. Quote, He did what any other young man would have done in his place, and asked King Charles to send him as an ambassador extraordinary to Constantinople. Not Istanbul. Istanbul was Constantinople. Whoa. Uh, quote, "'Twas a thousand pities, that amorous lady sighed, that such a pair of legs should leave the country. It's <laughs> a good quote. And so Orlando goes abroad, and now it's time for our old friend, Orientalism. Ah, yes. The mysterious, exotic, I'm using air quotes here, and sexy lands of Istanbul, which, as you pointed out, was Constantinople. But now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Changes. It's been a long time gone. You, you, gotta, you gotta stay on top of this. Got Turkish delight on a moonlit night. <sighs> Uh, so, yeah, this is a section that Wolf's gonna catch shit for, BTW, because everything is, of course, very, like, Arabian Night stereotypical bullshit, but that's that's not even the crux of it. We'll get there. So, our, uh, biographer elaborates that, well, there's not much to elaborate on. Much like the mysteries of the desert, the details of Orlando's adventures serving as ambassador are largely lost to time. But the biographer says we can probably safely assume, so this is again Wolf poking fun at biographers when they're like, we really don't have any information about this dude's life at this point, but let's just extrapolate some shit. Let's just make some assumptions. So saying, you know, we can assume that he was real good at it. And then he thought a lot about how Constantinople looks so different from England, which, yeah, that's probably a safe guess. And that he doesn't make any friends, really, but everyone likes him a whole lot. Because, sure, why not? We're, we're having a fun imagination game. And then Orlando gets promoted and throws a massive party and something happens? The writing in this section is opaque as all fuck. Just absolutely fucking frustrating to read. And it's one of those things where I'm not sure if it's the narrative device or just like 
stream of consciousness bullshit or what, but it's like trying to decipher fucking code and I hate it. It seems like Orlando gets upset and a riot breaks out and then he goes to bed and he might have sex, I don't know, possibly? And things get worse and then it stops maybe? It might just be a regular party, I have no fucking idea. And then he sleeps for a week again. <laughs> Sometimes you need to sleep for a week. It's 2020 vibes, man. I know. And then an actual revolution happens, and then bing, bing, boom, she wakes up a lady. As happens. She looks in the mirror, and uh, is described as still 30, by the way. Like, it's like, oh, she was still 30, you know, in case you were wondering. And is like, hmm, nice. That's pretty much the extent of thought she's willing to put into it. <laughs> she just kind of checks herself out and is like, hey. <laughs> and uh, after that, she puts on a Turkish robe, grabs her stuff, and fucks off to join an old Romani woman who is conveniently waiting for her with the donkey, and thus begins Orlando's adventures with a traveling Romani caravan. So yeah, the problem that readers and scholars have had with this is uh, this idea that Orlando's change into a woman couldn't have happened in England. That Wolf fell to the exotic otherness is what makes the change feel possible. And that she assigns like an inherent strangeness to the place and the people in doing so. Which, yeah, I think that's a fair issue, you know? She's gotta go all the way to the Ottoman Empire to get a pair of boobies. I think there's something to that. It's like the uh, exoticizing and otherness that, you know... Weird things happening. Weird places. Exactly, that kind of shit. Like, such a thing could never have occurred in England. No. (laughs) Only boring things happen there. So Orlando travels with this uh, Romney caravan for a while, which is apparently Wolf poking fun at Vita Sackville West, who was, like, kind of obsessed with Romney people in, like, the, the white girl way of, like, I just think they're so free, you know, just traveling wherever the wind takes them, so close to nature. And then, like, you take them camping, and it's like, I have to shit where? And uh, Sackville West would apparently be like, nah, I'm definitely gonna run off and join a caravan one day. I'm just a wild free spirit like that. And Wolf would be like, no, you won't. Do you like all your stuff too much? Much the same, Orlando is not long for the Romney life and misses her big fuck-off fancy house, and describes it to her caravan buddies who are like, uh, do you not get that that's kind of the antithesis of our whole deal? Also, there's a whole big world out there. Why do you only want to live on just a little part of it in your big stupid house? And Orlando says that they just don't get it, man. Probably because their life is savage and barbarous, which she knows is a shitty argument as soon as she says it. Uh, Wolf does follow this up with the extremely funny line, 476 bedrooms mean nothing to them, sighed Orlando. (laughs) The bedrooms, they mean nothing. Orlando realizes that yes, she is too soft to live with the Romani and needs to go back to England. And how does she realize this? She has a vision of the beautiful English countryside against the backdrop of the desolate desert wasteland. Yikes. And tells the caravan that it's time for her to leave. And they're like, yeah, that's for the best, as we were planning to murder you, but we're going to feel bad about it. Yikes. Wow. Real good. Hang on to that. I'm gonna I'm gonna revisit it in a second. Not not the they were planning to murder her because they were mad at her part. That's just fucking bad. But the general concept, we're gonna we're gonna come back to it. 
So Orlando goes home, and she's having a hard time officially adjusting to being a woman in the constraints of English society. Especially when she was used to being a horny dude constantly going after ladies. Now she's a horny lady, but has to wait and let dudes come after her. Also, she's not sure if she likes dudes coming after her. Also, she likes looking fly as hell in ladies' clothing, but is not a fan of how annoying it can be. And millions of women wearing pants with fake or otherwise tiny and useless pockets nod in agreement. She thinks about how she has to keep her ankles covered and not swear, and that this is starting to seem like some bullshit or bull-hooey. Also, her house has been seized because she technically can't own it because she's a woman who cannot own property. But she can live there, though, while she fights the lawsuit. She decides, having now been a man and a woman, that both are stupid as hell. Big mood, my dude. That's why I went with the neither or. <laughs> so I do just want to say, she becomes a woman and joins the Romney caravan, where she is immediately accepted and by all accounts treated as an equal, but just has to leave because their land is savage. Those are Wolf's words. Not, not the people, like the landscape or whatever. And they don't understand how cool having a big house is. Nah. It's much better to be in England, where you have no legitimate personhood, don't own your big house, and also can't cuss. But the grass sure is green, I guess. So, that's fucking dumb. <laughs> so Look, Meg, it's not just one or two rooms, but when you got 400 rooms, you go overlook a lot of oppression. <laughs> but anyway, who is still waiting for Orlando back at home, even though it's like a fuck ton of years later? Harriet Beecher Stowe. What? Harriet. Yeah, I get <laughs> Yes. The Archduchess Harriet Griselda of Finster... Harriet Beecher Stowe. Sure. And you know what else? She's not a she. He is the Archduke Harry. Uh, except he hasn't had a magic sex transformation. He was always a dude. He just disguised himself as a woman because he had the hots for Orlando. And he finds this new gender situation extremely convenient for him. It's just easier now. Yeah. So he's like, hey, marry me. And Orlando's like, hey, no. And Harry cries. And Orlando's like, oh my God, this used to be me. I used to be like this. Oh no. Harry follows Orlando around for a while and is fucking annoying, but he does eventually go away. Orlando tries to hang out with, like, philosophers and witty poets, but mostly they just have dumb misogynistic shit to say, so she hangs out with prostitutes instead, who are overall much more chill. She cross-dresses and engages in all manner of gender fuckery so she can wander around town without being bothered by assholes and starts maturing into a person who thinks complex thoughts and writes things that aren't completely stupid. She's still plugging away at that oak tree poem, though, and has been now for nearly 300 years. You want to make sure it's good. Revise, revise, revise. Also, the Victorian age is weighing on her and giving her husband fever, which is gross, and she doesn't want it. Who in all the world could possibly be a suitable husband for Orlando? Who, I ask you? No one. Well, that's what she thinks. She gets, yeah? she gets very dramatic and runs into a bog, trips, breaks her ankle, and smashes face first into said bog and is just like, fuck it, I will marry the bog, I am bog woman. Luckily, as she is consigning herself to a life of boghood, a man on a horse just so happens to ride by, and I quote, 
Madame, the man cried, leaping to the ground. You're hurt. I am dead, sir, she replied. A few minutes later, they became engaged. <laughs> the morning after, as they sat at breakfast, he told her his name. It was Marmaduke Bondthrop Shelmerdine Esquire. A lovely name. <laughs> this fucking book, man. I just love a few minutes later, they became engaged. <laughs> as it happens. <laughs> they immediately can guess everything about each other. Like, probably even the color of their underwear. Or who their favorite Ninja Turtle was. RJ, you want to give it a go? Michelangelo. Seriously? Raphael. Yes, Raphael. Did you really think Michelangelo was my favorite Ninja Turtle? No. You just you just said a turtle. Well, the only thing I heard was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. God, so you weren't even fucking listening. Was your favorite Ninja Turtle Raphael? No. Was it Michelangelo? No, it was Bebop. Bebop wasn't a Ninja Turtle. <laughs> it was Rock. You mean Rock Steady? Yeah, it was Rock and Bebop. Oh, Raphael was my favorite Ninja Turtle. My favorite's Megatron. I hate you. What color underwear am I wearing? Periwinkle. Pretty close. It's not Periwinkle at all. It's red. Pretty close to Periwinkle. Red is not anything close to Periwinkle. All right, you wearing gray? Gray! That's a boil. That's gray. That's a boil. That is gray underwear. That's boil. I'm just way better at you. You know, who's my favorite Ninja Turtle? <laughs> it's not a fucking turtle, apparently. Yeah, it is. Rocksteady's not a turtle. That's not my favorite, asshole. Is it a turtle? Yeah. Michelangelo. Yeah. See? <laughs> I know you perfectly. You don't know me worth <laughs> shit, apparently. No, I knew. Once you said you, I knew it was Raphael. <laughs> they both also know they're passionately in love with each other. There's just one thing they don't know. What is love? No, no, they know they're in love. Oh. Orlando is convinced Shell, which she mercifully shortens his name to, is a woman. And Shell is similarly certain that Orlando is a man. Quote, Never was there such a scene of protestation and demonstration as then took place since the world began. So they made super sure... By fucking. <laughs> uh, not to be a gender essentialist, mind you. Some women have dicks, some men have vaginas, and so forth. But in this case, that and seemed to... And J.K. Rowling has bad opinions. <laughs> but then in this case, that seemed to have sorted things out for them, at least. Then Shell talks about how he's a sailor and he's supposed to be in Falmouth to go to Cape Horn, but he's waiting for a wind. I don't know. Then there's a big old blank space that's meant to indicate, like, probably more fucking... Orlando wins some of her lawsuits, so that's cool, but also she's kind of poor now, but whatever, she has Shell. Shell's dope. Orlando doesn't even care about going to parties anymore when she and Shell could be fucking outdoors instead. Hell yeah. Then they get married, and then the wind changes, and uh, no, it's not a metaphor. The wind literally changes, and he has to go to Cape Horn, I guess. Orlando feels now she could finally write, and it's super boring. Literally, the biographer's like, what the fuck? What am I supposed to do with this? She's not fucking or fighting or traveling or anything. This is nothing. God damn it. I could have finished this book now if Orlando had finished writing, which is kind of funny, but also like, okay, stop, stop being cute. Like, you're the one writing the book and dragging this shit out, making the biographer look out the window and like talk about birds and the meaning of life because they're bored. Like, fucking get on with it. It's just, it's, it's precious. Orlando finishes her manuscript about the oak tree, finds that trains have now been invented and takes a train into London, 
Where miraculously still alive, Nick Green finds it, thinks it's great, and wants to publish it. She sits on a bench and, holy shit, it's 1928! A bench? Uh, everything. Wow. <laughs> Uh, she looks at a reflection in a store window, and she's about 36. Old bat, basically dead. Oh, especially in this story. Yeah. The oak tree has been reprinted seven times and won multiple prizes. So, you know, there's that importance of revision, yeah? Just keep plugging away for 300 years. You'll get there. She goes home, and it's nighttime. The clock chimes, and suddenly she calls her husband's absurdly long fucking name, and uh, he's in a plane now instead of a boat, and it's flying over the manor. Quote, Here, Shell, here, she cried, bearing her breast to the moon, which now showed bright, so that her pearls glowed like the eggs of some vast moon spider. Which, yeah, I get it. Her, her jewelry is glowing in the dark, but be bearing her breast to the moon, which now showed bright so that her pearls glowed. <laughs> it definitely also kind of sounds like she's lighting his way down a landing strip with her glow-in-the-dark titties. Indeed. <laughs> Shell, let me direct you home! And he jumps out of the plane and they're together again. The end. And that's Orlando. That's the story of the young man to woman who lived a very long time and was actually also about how Virginia Woolf was sorry that Vita Sackville West couldn't keep her house because she was a woman. It was a love letter and also a sorry about your house book. <laughs> Wish things turned out different. It'll make a Hallmark card for that, so I wrote you this book. It's a weird thing to give after a romantic tryst through the continent, but whatever. She gave it to her and they came back from their VK. And she wouldn't let her. She wouldn't let her look at it or or anything like read any of it. So it's like it's like it's a surprise. You can't look. So, Orlando was a success at the time, both critically and financially. Being a bit scandalous in its origin and material, it's viewed not just as high literature, but also as a gossipy novel about having sex with married women. Hey. Hey. So on one hand, the New York Times reviewed the book and spoke of the importance of the work as an experiment into forms of new literature. And on the other hand, we review the book and talk about how she got that puss. Got that puss. Now... One thing about Wolf that I never thought about is how not only was she good about getting the ladies, but how others may try to use the words of Wolf to help them in the same endeavor. Yeah, I typically don't think about, like, using Virginia Wolf to, like, pick up chicks. Well, enter one, Barack Hussein Obama II, a.k.a. Mr. President, who wrote in his most recent book, Promised Land, Quote, looking back, it's embarrassing to recognize the degree to which my intellectual curiosity those first two years of college paralleled the interest of various women I was attempting to get to know. Marx and Marcuse. So I had something to say to the long-legged socialist who lived in my dorm. Fannin and Gwendolyn Brooks were the smooth-skinned sociology major who never gave me a second look. Foucault and Wolf were the ethereal bisexual who mostly wore black. As a strategy for picking up girls, my pseudo-intellectualism proved mostly worthless. I found myself in a series of affectionate but chaste relationships. The ethereal bisexual. Maybe you weren't India, Barry, because you were, what, he said his first and second year of undergrad, so, yeah, maybe they didn't like you because you were a fucking sweaty 19-year-old referring to women as an ethereal bisexual trying to drop Foucault, who is decidedly non-sexy. Wait, 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 time out. 
You're saying Foucault's not sexy? I'm saying talking about Foucault is not yeah, sexy. Yeah, that bald head, man. Mm. You want to talk about Michelle Foucault? Does it make you horny, you ethereal bisexual, you? <laughs> I can't think of anything more progressive than using the words of Foucault, Marx, and Wolf to try to land a sexual partner. God bless you, Barry. And hey, you know, <laughs> well, I didn't use this strategy specifically. Oh, God. In general, it could work. Who? Who did you name drop to Jet Laid? See, I didn't need a name drop. I just took the classes where these people were taught, and it was me and a group full of women. <laughs> well, that's just having a social circle. Like, yeah, yeah. who are I, you gonna who are you gonna get try to like have sex with? The people who you're going to class with. Yeah, so you don't gotta go name drop it. You let the class do it for you. You just gotta put yourself in the right places, people. It's much, I re- much less awkward than trying to initiate a conversation and being like, hey, you know what's hot? Karl Marx. Hey, fellow classmate, how about this class? I'll have sex with you. <laughs> In terms of adaptations, there hasn't been too many. The, the biggest is the film from 1992, directed by Sally Porter and starring androgynous wood nymph Tilda Swinton as the titular Orlando and the significantly less androgynous Billy Zane as Marmaduke Schmamblebamp, out looking like Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, but if instead of constantly thinking about revenge, you got therapy and started using hair conditioner. This is a fine enough movie, I guess. Not much happens in it, exactly. Most importantly, I'd say Tilda Swinton does a good job of selling it, in the character of Orlando. Sure. It makes some weird departures from the book. It's not as fun it's not quite as funny. It tries to give it more of a point, I guess. It tries to give it a conceit. Like, Queen Elizabeth sort of curses Orlando. Like, Orlando, you must be young forever. And Orlando's like, okay. It's like the Green Mile. What? The Green Mile. He makes Tom Hanks like live to like 140. I do not remember that. <laughs> That's like the whole fucking end of the movie. That's I just why people remember get he sad. like cures his dick. Doesn't Tom Hanks have like piss cancer and he cures it? Maybe, but the bigger thing is like he lives to like 140 and it's like at first, like you think, oh, you're going to like live a long time. That's nice. But like Tom Hanks' character is like, I don't watch everybody I ever know die because I'm so old. Maybe. He had like 10 wives because they all keep dying. <laughs> don't remember if you're telling the truth or not. <laughs> no, that's true, man. I'll, I'll be real with you. The thing I remember the most about the Green Mile is the racism. <laughs> and like the rat lives like for 40 years. I am so sure you're full of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so it's a really pretty movie, but it's, it's mostly just kind of there. The Green Mile? No, fucking Orlando. It's a lot of Tilda Swinton looking at the camera like it's Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> yeah, it breaks that fourth wall. Uh, Orlando's been adapted several times for the stage. From what I can gather with the titular role, seeming to always be played by a woman. I can't decide if at this point it would be more subversive to have Orlando be played by a man the whole time, or if it would slide into, like, haha, funny man in dress territory. Depends on the man. Yeah, because like you were just saying, do David Bowie the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, what I think might be fun... Slapping some tits like, on Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I mean, that would always be fun. <laughs> I would never say no to that. If I were doing an adaptation, maybe... Like, since we're already engaging in gender play, maybe, like, when Orlando is a man, have him be played by a woman, and then when the transformation into a woman takes place, have her be played by a man. Whoa. You know, why the fuck not? Yeah, they're both Eddie Izzard. <laughs> just all Eddie Izzard all the time. I mean, I would say, like, fuck it, like, why overthink? Let's just cast 
a non-binary actor or like trans actors but then I feel like that can get into like weird misgendering territory and that's much less fun than when we make cis people do it like lord knows we get misgendered enough already so let's just misgender cis people for for entertainment and profits yeah uh the only other thing of note is that the character of Orlando appears in the literary grab bag graphic novel series The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Specifically, Volume 3, where they have to kill the Antichrist, who is coincidentally Harry Potter. It's not nearly as interesting as it sounds, I promise. And that's not accounting for the fact that Harry, not that we call him that, don't sue, Antichrist Potter shoots death lasers out of his dick. You know, some people still out there calling Alan Moore a genius. It's like, what if Harry Potter shot lasers out of his dick? What if he shot Swamp Thing out of his dick? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to, which is, hey, RJ. So, Orlando. Good, bad, man, woman, Orlando. I mean, Orlando's good. The movie's weird. The book sounds less weird. Orlando is on quite the journey. The journey to find oneself. And to find one's room in a house of 400 plus rooms. But I think Orlando finally did it. Thumbs up. Now, importantly here... You didn't mention the 2018 film, Vita in Virginia. Apparently it's bad. Yeah, but... And it's also not about Orlando. Yeah, but I got Gemma... How do you say her name? Ayrton? Yeah. And Elizabeth Debicki. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Orlando. Good or bad? I mean, as far as, like, inside joke declarations of love slash... Sorry about losing your big, big mansion condolences for your hot, modernist girlfriend go. It's definitely not bad. I'd be lying if I said it didn't try your patience at times, but that's fucking modernist stream of consciousness bullshit for you. Like, for all that modernism was trying to specifically make a point and, like, call out what it saw as self-indulgent bullshit, it sure did it by way of a lot of self-indulgent bullshit. But Orlando's a quick enough read and... It's a lot of fun, and it, it is surprisingly progressive in the way that it looks at gender and gender performance, and it's really interesting to look at that in the lens of the time that it was written. And also, it is a big gay love letter, and so it's fun to read it that way too. And of course, yeah, read it all with the context of the fact that Virginia Woolf was a very complicated, severely mentally and emotionally troubled and gosh pretty racist and frequently anti-semitic person she had a lot of shit going on when it comes to the writers on oh no lit class so many of them do but that's the beauty of it with a lot of the writers on here they're fucking dead and they've been dead a long ass time so you can kind of make your own decisions on where you land and separating, like, art from artist and things like that. And where you feel comfortable with those things. Because, well, because they're fucking dead. And so you don't have to worry about, like, what you're supporting and shit. As opposed to ones who are still alive and own full media empires. But anyway, yes, Orlando. Good. Interesting. Complex. And unlike shit like To the Lighthouse, much, much less grim. <laughs> A pretty quick read. And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono oh Lit Class. If you enjoyed it, oh yeah, you know what? We didn't acknowledge at all this whole time that this was a Thanksgiving episode. I tried to with Sylvia Plath. He shot me down. If you've enjoyed this episode, give thanks. 
by spreading the word. Do a good mitzvah. <laughs> Leave us a rating or a review. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your family. If you're doing a, a socially isolated Thanksgiving over your, your Zoom Thanksgiving, put the podcast on. There's nothing anyone could do about it. Or if you can't get to your family on Thanksgiving, we're your new family. This is coming out on Thanksgiving, Megan. They're going to hear this too late. Fuck. That's the sound of turkeys. Wait. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Pod. You can check out our store. You can check out our store at Turkey. We have a store. You can, there's a link to it at onolitclass.com because I can't think of the URL right now because someone is making turkey noises at me. There's links to our Patreon. There's links to our fucking everything ever at onolitclass.com. I'm so scared right now. Happy socially responsible Thanksgiving. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, I'm woke. That's Megan's true. not. Fuck Thanksgiving. I'm woke. <laughs> yes, you're woke. I'm Megan's not. broke. I'm the most broke. Megan voted for Trump. Oh my god! Uncool. For everybody else, happy Thursday. Just happy normal fucking Thursday. Thanksgiving's stupid anyway. I don't know why I acknowledged it. Our next episode will be out on December 10th. Until then, I'm Megan. Wow, that's been a while. Um, RJ? Maybe. I guess we'll see. We love you. Bye. And the river freezes over, and all the nobility skates over it and is having a great time. Is this like Martin Short? What? Wasn't he Mr. Frost in uh, the Santa Claus? Mr. Frost? Mr. Freeze? No, Mr. Freeze is Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's why I'm very confused. In the, like, Santa Claus 4. I don't fucking know. I have no... F- oh, I, I saw I'm pretty sure we watched one. that. No, we watched this bad movie. We did not. We did. can't believe you're doing this to me. I would remember that. We watched this movie. I would remember that thing.